0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.
1: Hello and welcome to The Wigs. I am your host Jim Minns. This is the first of a series of special episodes looking at the impact of the coronavirus on Australia's legal system and society. We have recorded the episode using Zoom from various locations around the state, so bear with us in relation to a few little sound quality issues. In this episode, The Wigs will discuss the COVID-19 related changes to the operation of the court system the impact on prisoner populations and the way federal and state parliaments have responded to the virus our special guest is rose jackson mlc a member of the new south wales upper house who has a fascinating chat with the whigs about how parliament is and should be responding to the crisis Later episodes will look at a range of issues including the way public health legislation is being used to respond to the virus, the international law dimensions of the crisis, for example could China be sued by other states affected by the virus. A particular focus in these later episodes will be a range of complex private law issues including employment, contract and civil liability. A key issue to be discussed will be whether the state will be liable to compensate people who contracted coronavirus as a result of cruise ships docking and contaminating the population. Lastly we will be posting a range of resources on our facebook page including cases practice notes and legislation discussed on this episode so head over and like our facebook page facebook.com forward slash the wigs podcast and take a look for yourself now strap yourself in listeners because here we go ladies and gentlemen of the jury welcome to a special edition of the wigs here we are live from our separate cabodes is cabode the right word What's a cabode? Abode, I think.
0: Abode. It's, it's oh, a yeah. corona abode, hence cabode.
1: <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I'll take it. it. I'll take, take it. it. <laughs> uh, as always, we are joined by the marvelously brilliant Stephen Lawrence. Hey Jim. Hey guys. Good to be here. Good to see you through my screen. Uh, the fantastic Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Hi Jim. Hi everybody. Hello. Hello. Lovely to have you here. And last but not least, the fantastic Felicity Graham.
2: G'day, Jim. G'day, boys.
1: Hello. Hello. Thank you for, for being here under such strange post-COVID-19 circumstances. We're going to jump straight into topic number one, which is the operation of the court system during this very particularly strange time. And to kick off this topic, We're flicking to you, Flick. Felicity Graham, take it away.
2: Jim, the spread of COVID-19 throughout the world has resulted in myriad responses at governmental and societal levels. And in Australia, since about early March, we have seen drastic new measures introduced which dictate the new ways in which courts will operate during this time and for the foreseeable future. And it's as a result of advice from health authorities and government measures, various different public health orders and so on, that courts have responded predominantly through the issuing of various practice notes from the heads of jurisdictions in the various courts in state, territory and federal jurisdictions. So the range of measures are designed to mean that the courts operate and remain open but operate consistently with those government directives and advice from health authorities which are designed to minimise the risks uh, to the health and wellbeing of court users, court staff, judicial officers, uh, people who are required to interact with the court, like witnesses and so on. And the number one uh, response that I think we should discuss first up is measures that have been put in place to restrict physical access to courthouses. So we see in a range of different uh, jurisdictions, practice directions have been made that effectively prohibit in-person appearances by parties or their lawyers in proceedings. So for example, in the Supreme Court of New South Wales from the 24th of March, uh, the rule now is that there shall be no personal appearances in any matters, save in exceptional circumstances. And that requires the leave of the chief justice or uh, the head of jurisdiction in uh, perhaps the, the appeal court. And that also applies to unrepresented litigants. So it's not just to parties who have lawyers who are able to get on the phone or the email or behind a video screen to to otherwise access the court. And we see um, then a range of measures that are being implemented, even when a person is uh, permitted physical access to. A courthouse. So, for example, in Tasmania, if you turn up to the magistrate's court, anyone trying to get into the building is required to wash or sanitise their hands before they do that. If they refuse to do that, they may be refused entry into the building. And then across a range of different jurisdictions, civil and criminal proceedings, we see an increased use of video link. Uh, for example, this Zoom group chat that we're using right now is exactly the same way that the um, Victoria County Court operates to be mm-hmm. able to hear hear matters down there uh, and particularly in some of the lower courts or particularly the magistrates jurisdiction dealing with criminal proceedings and other proceedings hearings are being done effectively by email so not even necessarily telephone or, or audio mm-hmm. or Wow. Audiovisual uh, links, so we've seen pretty extraordinary uh, changes in terms of the way that courts functions. Uh, courts function, mm. yeah, uh, and it's having um, a range of different kind of flow-on effects as well. So when, for example, bail courts are concerned we see in New South Wales that that means in effect a geographical centralisation of the courts that actually deal with bail applications particularly at the local court level because not all local courts have AVL facilities so there are really these hub courts in the metro area and in the regions that bail applications are being filtered into. and we see changes as well in terms of the response by legal aid organisations. So, legal aid New South Wales has now closed all of its offices to any face-to-face uh, operations. And legal aid New South Wales will be dealing initially with all custodies that are bail refused by the police and come to the courthouse because they'll be doing it by video link from their legal aid offices that have those facilities to then feed into those hub courts. And then we see in terms of where in-person attendance occurs that there are a range of measures that have been introduced to try to honour the social distancing rules, the 1.5 metre rule, the four square metre rule which we'll discuss bit more in detail when we come to one of the other later topics but they in effect mean that for example when a party attends in person they're not allowed to go into the courtroom until their specific matter is called so it's quite a different scene to what you might normally see um like almost like a a rugby kind of match where people are jostling to get to the bar table in some of the busy courts. Um, none of that anymore. Um, everyone's parked outside the courtroom and then people go in one by one for their matter. And then limits of, for example, eight people to a courtroom for different matters. And I think the. Is it chaos? It, it sounds like, like chaos. chaos. Yeah, look, it's having, I think, really extraordinary effects on the operation of the system. And we'll talk more, I think, about some of the delays that are involved because when you start introducing these types of measures, um, inevitably it leads then to um, what has been one of the other main decisions by courts, which is that certain types of hearings are just suspended with um, no prospect of them getting on any time before perhaps the end of the year at, at the earliest.
3: Um, and that so includes jury, jury trials, trials, doesn't it? That's right,
2: yeah. So jury trials in Victoria, Queensland, New South Wales, um, Tasmania, across the, across the country, jury trials have been suspended. And that has a different operation in different places because... Um, only some jurisdictions have the possibility of a judge-alone trial. For example, Victoria, you cannot have a judge-alone trial in criminal proceedings. You can in civil proceedings, but not in criminal proceedings. So...
0: And it's worth noting... Sorry. It's, it's worth noting that the Commonwealth trials can never be done without a jury because there's the constitutional protection for it, right? Indeed. Yeah. There are some jury trials running... Sorry. There are some jury trials running um, that had already started, and what they're doing is making people sit in the back of the courtroom in the gallery so that they're maintaining the social distancing, although I don't know what happens in the jury room. Are they kind of using giant jury rooms so that people don't have to be next to each other? I don't know. And at least one barrister pulled out... Um, of a matter of his own accord because he was 69 years old and said, I'm not getting sick, my client's sick, I'm out. Um, And it went up to the Court of Criminal Appeal who declined to comment on whether or not the barrister's behaviour was right uh, but simply said in light of him doing that, then the trial could no longer proceed because the judge was pretty keen to keep it going.
3: Seems extraordinary to have, have jury trials continue in circumstances where, you know, not least or not just because of the public health risks going around, but just the general level of anxiety and stress in the community. I can't... I'm sure if I was an accused, I wouldn't feel complete confidence that the jury's going to have their mind on the job as opposed to wanting to get out of there.
2: Yeah, and in Tasmania, they had, up until very recently, indicated that they were intending to continue with jury trials... But the Supreme Court ended up putting out a media release saying, look, we initially suspended them as a precaution. We don't necessarily... um, You know, we had intended to resume jury trials, but they um, just on the 18th of March released another media release saying that Precautions have been planned for social distancing and other health and safety arrangements. But the level of public alarm around the coronavirus has become so great that it would not be fair to compel people to serve on juries at this time. If jury trials went ahead, there would be a danger of jurors being distracted by concern about their health and safety and so on. So I think there's recognition in the court system of that exact dynamic that you're talking about, Steve, where... Even though public health measures might be able to be put in place to protect people in terms of how you actually structure the court sittings and so on, it's just going to be operating on people's minds in such a dominant way that how could they properly apply their minds to the task at hand in terms of deciding the guilt or innocence of the accused.
3: I think there's no defended matters going ahead in the local court, is there?
2: Yeah, so the local court in New South Wales initially indicated that they would be carrying out defended hearings for custody matters and uh, for people on bail or at liberty otherwise they were being deferred but since the court has indicated no, we're not going to be doing uh, defended matters for Mm -hmm. custodies either and today which we're recording on Monday the 30th of March, the District Court in New South Wales indicated that they'll no longer be doing sentence hearings, appeals from the local court, arraignments, readiness hearings where the defendant is not in custody and that's going to be reviewed again in a month. Um, The High Court has deferred sittings in Canberra or on circuit for the next three months and then they'll be reviewing the question of future hearings in the middle of the year but they'll continue to get continue to give judgments and deal with special leave applications where that's necessary and then there are some other courts that are still operating for example the family court and the federal circuit court are trying to operate predominantly by telephone they're limiting any face-to-face in court hearings to 1.5 hours so where there's an urgent matter that needs to be dealt with face-to-face, for example, in migration matters where it involves a minor or a detention issue, then uh, they will entertain a face-to-face in-court hearing but only to that limit of an hour and a half and then it can be continued by telephone or written submissions after that. So, it's, And then there's a whole lot of um, information about the steps that courts will take in terms of cleaning surfaces after any person
0: appearances and so on. So heaven forbid if you want to argue that, say, the National Cabinet is unconstitutional, you won't get a hearing. I guess that's the reality of where we are. In the High Court, I mean. I mean, I guess if you've got a reasonable enough hearing.
3: There must still be a duty judge because the High Court's got all sorts of jurisdiction, obviously, in respect to Commonwealth matters, all sorts of original... Uh, Jurisdiction. So they must still be operating, right? But they've terminated like the sittings that they normally have planned going forward. But I think that doesn't mean that the sort of doors are shut completely, does it? Certainly hope not. I hope not. I mean,
0: one of the interesting things in New South Wales is that they passed in the COVID. Legislation that Parliament passed before it shut down, and we'll talk more about that later, but they passed in there a whole series of measures, particularly to deal with criminal matters, where they could, say, take evidence by way of video recording from key witnesses and then later allow the use of that evidence at trial. We haven't seen any practice notes or directions from the district or Supreme Courts concerning that, but I guess they've done that so that if things continue as they're going, they're going to have to do something. Um, and we may well see individual witnesses brought on for cross examination.
3: Yeah, I've got a trial in May in the district court, which is a jury trial. And we got an indication at the readiness hearing, I think last week, that it would be likely that the complainant would be called and cross examined in that May sitting. But the trial itself then deferred. Um, So it looks like they're planning on making certain use of court time in certain types of matters, but, you know, the main bulk of defended matters and sentence matters is basically on freeze.
2: And I know a number of courts are looking at bringing forward other work that they can do which can be dealt with by video link or otherwise where the parties can still have a hearing without needing to be in person. So I think the Victorian County Court is doing an audit of all their other matters and bringing forward matters where the parties can agree to an earlier date. Same with the Court of Appeal, Court of Criminal Appeal matters in New South Wales. So I think the courts are trying to grapple with how they can stay open to the extent that they can to do the ordinary work as it normally arises, but also, given the circumstances, try to reshuffle things and make sure that they're using the resources that they can within the limits of the public health situation to to do work and and get it done.
3: Flick, has there been a change to the circumstances in which a court can order that evidence be given by Audiovisual Link. I think that's been loosened up, hasn't it?
2: It has. So this new Act, which is the COVID-19 Legislation Amendment Emergency Measures Act 2020, which is the first Act this year of the New South Wales Parliament and will be the only Act on the books for a while to come, it seems, given Parliament has been adjourned for about six months. That Act in Part 2.9 amends the Evidence, Audio and Audiovisual Links Act, which already exists to provide for various different hearings and also witnesses to give evidence or for parties to make submissions by audio or audiovisual link in New South Wales, including from interstate, where the ordinary position is that witnesses and parties attend court in person and actually come to court to be heard. The amendments insert a new Section 22C and provide for special provisions relating to the COVID-19 pandemic, which have effect for a period relevant to this pandemic. The new provision prevails to the extent of any inconsistency with any other provision of the Evidence Audio and Audiovisual Links Act. And there are a range of amendments, not only relating to witnesses giving evidence, but also to the way in which a party appears or a lawyer uh, acting for a party appears for them. So, firstly, the appearance of an accused person in any proceedings relating to bail is to take place by way of audiovisual link unless the court otherwise directs. In other words, that is the starting point. The default position is you're in custody, you're seeking bail, you don't get to come to court in person, you must appear by audiovisual link unless the court makes an order for you to attend.
3: Whereas you normally have a right to personal appearance, for your first bail application.
4: That's you? right. Yeah. That's right.
2: For a first bail application, unless it's on the weekend or at certain specific locations around the state, like the Surrey Hills cells, which have video link facilities for accused persons to appear by video link and also to speak to their lawyer by video to prepare their bail application. The ordinary position is that an accused is entitled to physically appear at their first bail application before a court. The Act also recognises a couple of other categories of physical appearance proceedings where an accused is entitled to appear in person. They are any criminal trial or hearing of charges and any inquiry into a person's fitness to be tried. So now under the special provisions for COVID-19 in relation to physical appearance proceedings, they may take place by way of audiovisual link if the court directs. Similarly, a witness or a legal practitioner representing a party in any proceedings other than proceedings prescribed by the regulations, which I don't think have been made yet, uh, they may appear in court by way of audiovisual link if the court directs. And so because we have all these practice notes that effectively set all the rules for when the court expects witnesses or parties to appear by audiovisual link, those directions have effectively already been given uh, and each of the courts have, um, to a large extent, given directions that avoid any in-person appearances.
0: Except um, that if you look at subsection yeah. five... That's right. Those, it seems to me that the practice notes are ultra-virus. Subsection five says that they can only make the direction, and a direction here includes a direction that a practitioner representing a party take place by way of AVL if the court directs. So they can only make that direction only after the parties have had an opportunity to be to be heard on the matter. So I don't think that I don't think the court has the power to issue the practice note. So I don't know that that's going to have any practical effect, but. I can think of a matter that I've got coming up where that might be very interesting, where we've got sort of seven or eight witnesses in a pretty hotly contested matter, and I don't know what's going to happen.
1: God forbid you get arrested, uh, you know, now. I'm assuming arrests have gone down since
3: this has been implemented, right? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I suspect crime rates of certain types probably have dropped. Maybe crime rates of other types have increased. I don't know. There's been violence. a lot of
0: talk about domestic violence spiking. I'm told anecdotally that police are providing a lot more bail um, at the police stage, that is before things come to court, even on a bail hearing. And at bail hearings, magistrates are providing bail to people at rates that someone described to me as they, they, they are astonished. This is a hardened defence solicitor just saying to me that she was astonished about the people who were being granted bail by the magistrates. Wow. So, Well,
2: it's interesting to see as well. So partly it's through this deferral process, but the Tasmanian Courts website says that the listings by police have been reduced by 50% already. And partly I think that's because when someone gets a summons from the police, the police have agreed to make the first return date not sooner than 20 weeks down the track so that's going to defer a lot of listings but I wouldn't be surprised if police agencies around the country are arresting less people also because I just wonder whether police it's operating on police officers individual states of mind that they don't necessarily want to be rushing in to start grabbing people and getting involved in physical tussles potentially in the context of restraining someone, if they can just send them the paperwork that will land in their mailbox and they'll come to court in, you know, three, six months' time, well, that sounds a lot safer for the police officer.
3: It's sort of interesting to think about all of our institutions and our conventions all being impacted by this kind of lightning bolt moment and all of these changes happening and it sort of gives a lot of pause to think I think about a lot of things that we do and whether they're necessary. I mean in terms of operations of courts like I've been adjourning matters via emails with the judges chambers and telephone calls with the judges chambers with the prosecutor on the other end and in some ways, you think to yourself, why haven't we been doing this before? But there's a lot that you give away as well. And I think if we, if we erode this concept of personal appearance and a right to personal appearance, we probably will regret it down the track. So it's good to hear that that legislation is time-limited in terms of the AVL stuff.
2: Yeah, so the time limitation is that uh, it ends either six months after commencement or um, not more than 12 months after commencement. Right. So we'll see, but I suppose yeah, they could change that. By regulation. Pardon, yeah. Manny?
0: It can be extended by regulation to 12 months, but no longer.
2: That's right. Sorry. The 12-month is an extension by regulation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Steve, in terms of weighing up or using this event to reflect upon what parts of our system could change for the better and what Uh, access to justice mechanisms could be used to improve the experience of court users and practitioners and make things more efficient or ultimately fairer because people feel like they're not being, for example, so inconvenienced or punished by just the way that the system
4: Mm.
2: um, operates and takes time and so on. Um, But I, I do think we need to be cautious about rushing into adopting these kinds of approaches on a long-term basis. I was recalling um, a day I was sitting in court waiting for one of my matters out in the far west of New South Wales and um, the audio-visual link was engaged. There was a person brought up on the screen, a small... Child from a detention centre somewhere about 900 kilometres away and the magistrate commenced the proceedings, read out their sentence judgement, pronounced sentence upon the child and it was the wrong child.
0: Yeah.
2: And you... I think you just... There's a real danger of... Whole range of different other errors occurring when you start using these kinds of technologies. Hmm. Links being broken.
3: A, a much...
2: Well, for example, a link being broken where a party is addressing a court and they're not aware that the court can't hear them or submissions aren't heard properly. I was appearing by video link the other day to the district court. Um, in Dubbo from Sydney and there was a really bad feedback problem. The judge was hearing everything twice and it's really difficult and it really impacted on the advocacy mode and on the process, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting part of all of this is... How do you ask questions on video link? How do you persuade people on video link? The modalities of communication that we are used to are not necessarily, they may be, but they are not necessarily the correct modalities of communication. Um, People respond differently to screens and audio as it is, uh, but also do you speak slower? Do you speak faster because it forces people to listen to you and take, allows you to have control of the courtroom? There are so many different ideas that we just, it's pretty uncharted. Um, and I don't know, but if it ever gets to the point where people are running jury trials by television or by, by you know recording or all over AVL, I'm going to be watching a hell of a lot of TV to kind of pick up the techniques that people use to persuade on TV. Maybe the televangelists from America might have a few tips that we might use in our advocacy because that's where it's going to land. Fleek, what are are the actual laws on when they can and can't use the pre-recorded video evidence for trials, criminal trials?
2: So the the new laws that have been introduced under this response to the COVID-19 pandemic create a regime where certain witnesses can give evidence by way of a recording that is then used in a subsequent trial when, for example, juries can come back into the courthouses and so on. And the categories have been set out in the Act, although it can be amended by regulation, which uh, we haven't seen yet. But the categories as they currently stand are a complainant in prescribed sexual offence proceedings, a complainant in domestic violence offence proceedings, a complainant in proceeding for a serious indictable offence that is an offence of violence, and in the context of talking about trials that are occurring in the district court or the Supreme Court, which is uh, what we're concerned with, That will basically mean any offence of violence just about because just about all violent offences that go up to the district or Supreme Court qualify under that definition of a serious indictable offence. And then there's a further category which is quite interesting uh, and in recognition of certain members of the population being more likely to be adversely affected by the pandemic, um, a, a witness who is either a complainant or any other witness in a criminal trial whom the court considers is at a significantly greater risk from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, than the risks to members of the community generally, including because of the age or health of the complainant or witness. That category also, it seems raises a pretty interesting scenario where, for example, the accused in their defence might wish to call a particular witness who might fall into that category of having health problems or being aged and a question about uh, changing up the ordinary order of things where the accused might actually wish to get some evidence recorded ahead of time. To avoid not being able to call a witness who might suffer under the pandemic and actually call a defence witness before the trial even kicks off. I mean, that's a potential scenario. Um, but they're the categories that currently exist under the Act. And then that has a. Um, that operates then with what the court's new powers are, which are that. The court of its own motion can order that a relevant witness give a pre-recorded evidence at a a pre-recorded evidence hearing Uh, and that can happen in the absence of a jury or even in the case of a judge alone trial ahead of the actual judge alone trial running. And so where we see, for example, that even judge alone trials where the accused is not in custody can't be heard under the current district court regime, that, that provision could potentially be used. But the court can only make the order in certain circumstances which basically require, requires the court to give the parties a hearing on the question requires the prosecution and the defence to have completed all their pretrial disclosure and case management requirements and then requires ultimate satisfaction that it's in the interest of
0: justice to do so. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's interesting. I I think if I was a... If I had a witness who was on the verge of death or, you know, at risk and I was a defendant, I'd probably just... Zoom chat them, video record their evidence and then if they died tender it under one of the hearsay objections rather than do it under some regime.
2: I think you're right. Um, I don't think you'd... Well, it would be a pretty big forensic decision to make to reveal your hand in that way.
0: And if you had... Sorry.
2: And if you had such a compelling exculpatory witness who you feared might... um, vulnerable to the COVID uh, pandemic, I suppose you could just take a statement from them or take a video statement from them and serve it on the Crown as part of your no application.
0: One of the things that is obviously a problem is that the mere fact of pre-recording anything gives rise to the danger that the prosecution agencies or the police or whoever will go and do further investigation. Um, I, for one, am prepared for the outcomes of that. It's already a risk in child sexual assault matters that are pre-recorded. And I think, I'm hopeful that the courts on the other side of this, when the trials are actually run, will be fair about that and will exclude evidence. Although if it's compelling evidence, one wonders whether or not they will or they won't. But ultimately, if it's so compelling, you're getting a just outcome regardless of the game being changed. And much as my defence lawyer hackles um, go up at that kind of thing, I think that ultimately people wouldn't have too much of a problem with that.
2: Yeah, and Um, I think it's important that the legislation also recognises that there might be a number of different scenarios that arise where it's appropriate for the witness to give further evidence at a later time. And so although you require the leave of the court for um, a pre record witness to give further evidence, and although that leave is constrained by two categories, the second is quite broad, interests of justice requires it. The first category is that the witness um, or other parties seeking leave is doing so because of becoming aware of a matter of which the party could not uh, reasonably have been aware at the time of the recording. Um, so, if circumstances change, there's not a there's not a complete barrier to rectifying the situation, which is as it should be. True. The other thing to note. Um, just in terms of how this practically operates and will be of particular interest to defence lawyers, I think, is once the recording is made, there are restrictions on access to it. And we see restrictions on access uh, in various different circumstances when, for example, the police record... Um, a domestic violence complainant's evidence-in-chief, there are restrictions on access to legal representatives and there's a regime where it's a criminal offence to copy or disseminate that material even to your client uh, and provisions for returning the evidence and so on. But under this new regime the accused person and their lawyer is not entitled to be given possession of the recording of the pre-recorded evidence uh, where the evidence was given by a complainant or um, certain witnesses that meet the definition of a vulnerable person or special witness under provisions relating to children and so on. And that seems to create somewhat of a practical barrier. Although um, the accused and their lawyer um, are to be given reasonable access from time to time to the recording, uh, that's got to be arranged with the prosecutor effectively who is permitted to have a copy of the recording. And to me, there seems no basis in principle to distinguish between the prosecutor as a lawyer and the defence counsel or solicitor as lawyers and all the ethical obligations that come with handling evidence in a case and not disseminating it and so on. And it's an unnecessary, in my view, barrier to the proceedings being able to be uh, dealt with and responded to, and preparation done ahead of the inevitable return of the proceedings for the actual trial down the track?
0: Well, I hope some sense will prevail there and they'll either make a regulation or I think ultimately, even if we can't get the video, the transcripts will be done and you know, that'll sort itself out, hopefully.
1: Stephen Lawrence, yeah, look, we're getting, moving on. We want to talk about the criminal justice impacts, you know. On the other side, people who are in jail, how has the COVID-19 crisis affected those individuals?
3: Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, So the onset of the virus in China uh, late last year and then into early this year quickly showed a significant impact on prisoner populations. Jails in three provinces in China became infected um, and the women's prison in Wuhan was particularly hard hit. Um, in Iran, approximately 60 to 80,000 prisoners were released uh, to ward off an outbreak occurring in that country. While Italy has not suffered an outbreak in prisons, the restrictions imposed as a consequence have led to riots, with 11 deaths uh, being reported as a consequence of those riots. Uh, the restrictions imposed in Italy, I understand, have included a ban on visits. Here um, in Australia um, and in New South Wales particularly, uh, the most direct impact seems to be in respect to prison visits. Um, All personal visits uh, to prisoners in New South Wales jails have been suspended. Legal visits, as I understand it, were suspended for a period but have now been reinstated, though I'm told uh, that they are rarely occurring, uh, that lawyers are not visiting jails and that Uh, visits to the extent that they are occurring and generally occurring by audiovisual links. There have been reports um, in the media um, and discussion about prisons being in lockdown or all uh, prisoners being in a state of lockdown where they're not um, able to leave their cell except for certain periods during the day. But my understanding is by and large, that's not so Uh, that the main impact at this stage has been on visits. In terms of the spread of the virus into prisons, the situation is still unclear. Three staff members have tested positive at at Long Bay Jail, and around 100 inmates um, have been tested in the prisoner populations, fortunately um, all negative so far. We've seen a number um, of responses to this awful possibility of the spread of this disease in vulnerable and confined prisoner populations. Uh, Probably the most important is on the legislative front. As part of the COVID-19 Act that passed last week, amendments were made to the Crimes Administration of Sentences Act. That is the act that normally people get parole under and under which uh, jail sentences are um, administered and regulated. Uh, There was a number of amendments to that act, but one um, in particular put in a new Section 276 of the Crimes Administration um, of Sentences Act. And it provides that if an inmate uh, belongs to a class of inmates prescribed by the regulations and the commissioner is satisfied that releasing the inmate on parole is reasonably necessary because of the risk to public health or to the good order and security security of correctional premises arising from the COVID-19 pandemic, then uh, the commissioner may release that person on parole. The uh, class of inmates um, that may be prescribed can uh, be done according to a number of criteria, including offence type, the period remaining before the expiry of the inmate's uh, non-parole period or sentence, an inmate's age, an inmate's health or vulnerability or any other matter. There are some important limitations, as one might expect, on this quite exceptional new power that the Commissioner um, of Corrective Services has. Uh, The power is not exercisable in respect of a prisoner who is serving a sentence of imprisonment for any of the following offences. Murder, a serious sex offence, a terrorism offence, an inmate serving a sentence of imprisonment for life, um, a serious offender as defined... Um, an inmate being kept in custody in relation to a, an offence against a law of the Commonwealth. And that may well be uh, be because it's expected that the Commonwealth, if necessary, can legislate in respect to the matter, in respect of its own prisoners. Um, a person being held in custody after their sentence has expired uh, pursuant to um, a terrorism high-risk offender order or a more general high-risk offender order... Um, so, yeah, the power um, is not uh, completely at large. It um, has been prescribed to not apply in certain circumstances. I think it can be seen that the, the law is really aimed at achieving two objectives, and those are reflected, I suppose, in the circumstances when the Commissioner can act and place someone on early parole. First and the, firstly, where it is reasonably necessary because of the risk to public health, Now, this would obviously include the public health of inmates, but I think it would also uh, very importantly include considerations of the public health of the community around jails. And you can certainly um, imagine, for example, regional towns with large jails um, uh, near them where the community is at risk because of the daily swill of inmates in and out and staff in and out. Uh, the second purpose that I think the section is trying to achieve um, is that reflected in the circumstance where the commissioner can order parole, quote, um, to achieve the good order and security of correctional premises arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. So that would seem to cover circumstances, for example, where prisons are on lockdown, where there might have been riots and so forth, and where for good order and security, it's just necessary to... Uh, Uh, to thin out uh, the prisoner population. Uh, The next response that we've seen impacting on prisoner populations has been in the courts. I think generally speaking, we're seeing people um, being granted bail at really unprecedented levels. That's often occurring in the context of police bail, so people getting bail um, in police stations, uh, but also in the decisions of the local court. But we're also seeing a series of bail decisions that have been handed down in superior courts, essentially giving bail because, at least in part, um, of the COVID-19 crisis. uh, These reasons for decision in respect of superior courts have been reduced to writing, and they are quite interesting. Uh, The first that um, I thought I might look at is uh, the decision in the bail application of a Miss Bros, B-R-O-E-S. That was um, a decision... Um, of uh, Lex Lasry, uh Justice Lex Lazary of the Victorian Supreme Court. Um, he observed paragraph 35, quote, uh, turning to the matter of delay and the more unusual circumstances of this application. Since the filing of this application and the affidavit material The entire community has been overtaken by the eventuality of COVID-19, which the World Health Organisation has declared a pandemic. At the time of hearing this application, there were 150 confirmed cases of people infected with this virus in Victoria and 565 cases Australia-wide. At the time of revisiting this ruling, uh, the nationwide number has grown in excess of 1,300, with over 230 confirmed cases in Victoria Uh, Dramatic steps have been taken, um, he goes on to say, by both the state and federal governments to endeavour to, as they say, flatten the curve in relation to the spread of this virus. On Sunday 22, March 2020, federal and state governments announced further measures restricting people's activity with a promise that additional measures will be introduced in the near future. It seems clear that there will be significant delays occasioned within the courts as a result of this virus, which may result in lengthy periods of remand. In this court and the county court, for example, jury trials have been postponed indefinitely, primarily for the reason to avoid the assembly of jury pools, which require large numbers of people and which obviously create a significant risk of the transmission of the virus from person to person. Uh, His honour then goes on to consider some of the other measures that are impacting on the court system, many um, of which Felicity has spoken about earlier. Um, He then says at paragraph 39, further, it is unknown whether there have been any instances of COVID-19 in the prison population. As I follow it, at the time of revisiting this ruling, Victorian prisons do not have any cases of the virus. However, as Mr McGrath submitted on behalf of the applicant, in addition to issues of delay, there can be no question that once the virus is discovered in any of the Victorian prisons, there will have to be a significant lockdown for a number of reasons. The transmission between prisoners will be significant and likely to occur at a much greater rate than the transmission that is occurring in the community at present. Uh, that will result in a large number of prisoners becoming quite seriously ill, depending on their age and underlying conditions. I appreciate these are matters of speculation to a degree, but the situation is sufficiently urgent to, re- to require them to be taken into account, further bearing in mind that the entire situation may have changed again within one or two weeks." Uh, so Miss Brose uh, was ultimately granted bail by Justice Lazary. She was um, a person who the judge described as being a relatively young and healthy person. And um, he went on to say if the applicant were to be infected by COVID-19, she would be likely to make a recovery. However, uh, he went on to say um, in conclusion, in addition to the delay of her case, she would suffer the consequences of a significant lockdown in the prison, <clears throat> which would have substantial effects on her and no doubt her relationship with her family, which would be a dramatic development for a person who has not previously been in custody. So she was somebody um, um, on drug charges that look um, at a quick uh, look at the decision to be t- to be not uh, terribly serious, but certainly not uh, trivial. She was a young and healthy person, uh, but on account really it seems of those two factors of delay and the impact of likely lockdown um um, and also this high risk of infection uh, Justice Lazary saw fit uh, to bail her. Um, in New South Wales, there uh, was a decision uh, this week um, of Justice Hamill in the in the uh, bail application of Raqi L. Bakor. Um, that's uh, New South Wales Supreme Court 323. And Justice Hamill, um, in the decision, uh, provides a really helpful and useful overview um, of the situation as it pertains to the courts um, in light of the epidemic. And he records a number of important facts that I think will be useful going forward in bail applications by applicants in in lower courts. He talks about, quote, jails and similar institutions are particularly susceptible to the rapid spread of the COVID-19 virus. It is difficult, if not impossible, to enforce or facilitate the kind of restrictions currently being encouraged upon people in the community. Um, He then says a few things about the situation at the moment in the jails. He says, while a number of inmates have been isolated by having flu-like symptoms, at this stage there has been no confirmed cases of COVID-19 inside New South Wales prisons. Um, He then goes on to note, inmates are currently subject to more onerous conditions of incarceration, All personal visits have been suspended. It is unclear how long that situation will prevail. Uh, He does say this. um, It seems that there are also more occasions now when inmates are kept within their cells for extended periods and particularly talks about uh, the situation in the Bathurst Jail where there was apparently um, a temporary lockdown following um, a COVID scare. Uh, Justice Hamill then goes on to cite some of uh, the orders or memorandums that have been made by the Chief Magistrate in respect of the progression um, of matters in the local court because this was um, a local court matter that he was considering bail for. Uh, He then uh, went on to consider questions of delay, um, saying, as the prosecutor properly and fairly conceded, it is not known whether the criminal justice system will have resumed anything approaching approaching normality by July. Uh, The applicant cannot know whether his case is likely to be heard on the date presently allocated for the hearing Unless there is a decrease in the spread of the virus, it may be that his case will not be heard until much later in the year. Uh, Justice Hamill also went on to say, uh, importantly, I think, quote, it may be expected that inmates waiting in jail will have significant anxiety levels arising from the possibility that the virus is capable of spreading quickly within the prison if any positive cases of COVID-19 emerge. Um, uh, His honour then uh, went on to consider uh, some of the recent changes to the law um, and then um, ultimately said this in terms of uh, the bail law and um, its application in the circumstances of the particular case quote in some cases and depending on the circumstance and evidence in a particular case the issues that the COVID-19 pandemic threat will be relevant to the question of whether an applicant has shown cause why that detention is not justified Um, In other cases, and this is one of them, the factual issues arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic will be relevant to various factors under Section 18, uh, which prescribes all of the relevant circumstances that are able to be considered um, in respect of an assessment of bail concerns. Um, His Honour then uh, went on to say, in this case, having considered all of the relevant matters under Section 18, And making an informed assessment of the risks involved in his release. I'm satisfied that the bail concerns raised by the prosecution were able to be mitigated by the imposition of strict conditions. Um, Yeah, so the case uh, that Justice Hamill was deciding was um, a local court matter, a person accused of domestic violence matters, and His Honour also took into account the fact that uh, the complainant in the matter was apparently reluctant uh, to proceed in the matter and had provided. Um, an explanation to the police that um, exculpated uh, the applicant for bail. Another um, interesting uh, response in the courts to the COVID-19 uh, epidemic is seen in the decision that came down today from the Court of Criminal Appeal in the matter of uh, Mr. Cahill, K-A-H-I-L. Now, this was a case where uh, the barrister who'd been appearing for the accused believed that He had been exposed to COVID-19 and withdrew withdrew from the case. It seems not with the agreement or consent of the trial judge. Um, It seems clear from the decision of the Court of uh, Criminal Appeal that the uh, trial judge was not particularly happy about that. He refused to vacate the trial and it seems was intending to force the solicitor who'd been instructing uh, counsel before his withdrawal to appear Um, and conduct the matter, which was a a trial matter in the district court, it seems, concerning fairly serious allegations of drug supply. Rather uh, than doing his first jury trial um, in those circumstances, uh, the solicitor uh, perhaps wisely saw fit to appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal, and the Court of Criminal Appeal um, overturned uh, Judge King's decision to force the trial on, and they did so really... On the strict legal basis, um, that Judge King of the District Court had not considered um, a relevant legal legal matter that he needed to consider to properly exercise his discretion, being whether the trial of the accused would be fair in those circumstances. Uh, The court uh, concluded by saying this. um, In the present case, it is not appropriate that the matter be admitted to the District Court for the making of orders on the correct basis the only legally reasonable conclusion is that the trial of the applicant would be likely to be unfair if he were forced to continue without competent representation. Although the trial judge said in the reasons that the Crown did not oppose the application, the extract from the transcript set out above shows that the Crown uh, supported it. Uh, the Crown took the same position before this court. Uh, having regard to the conclusion I have reached, it is not necessary to address the various other issues canvass in argument before this court, which included the fairness of a trial in which an accused representative appeared by AVL and the Crown appeared in person, or the level of risk of infection of the COVID-19 virus, which would warrant the vacation of a trial. So they didn't substantively uh, rule on uh, issues pertaining to COVID-19, but certainly things agitated before the court included the fairness of a trial where counsel um, if they were to appear, were apparently to appear via audiovisual link. So Carhill seems to be um, a bit of a contrary example, uh, perhaps to those um, earlier bail decisions, and an example, um, it seems, of a trial judge not being willing to take into account uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, and rather determining uh, to take a particular course, in terms of forcing that trial on in the circumstances, but the Court of Criminal Appeal not agreeing with that and um, overturning that ruling. So just in conclusion on that, um, we're seeing a response to COVID-19 in both the administration of prisons, um, in a legislative response that is quite um, unusual and important, and also um, in decisions of the court in the bail context. Um, It's interesting also uh, to reflect on how it's going to impact on the sentencing of people. A lot of sentences, um, as Felicity talked about earlier, are simply being adjourned, being vacated. But I think it's reasonable to assume that where sentences are going ahead, uh, that COVID-19 is being taken into account um, in a range of ways, including uh, the risk of infection in prisons, the stress and anxiety of being in of being in prison um, in those circumstances, the fact that custodial sentences will be harder to endure, it would seem in many ways, not least on account um, of being deprived of family visits for an indefinite period.
0: I mean, I I think in terms of bail, we're going to see sensible approaches that have been sorely lacking, at least in New South Wales, for a long, long time. Um, And I, I do note, for those who are facing cases where there are nonviolent offenders and there's some um, difficulty about getting over some sort of hurdle, you know, like special circumstances or whatever. Can I commend the case of the United States of America and Johnny Grobman, um, which is from the United States District Court of Flor- in Florida in the Miami division, um, which really goes into a lot of that stuff in the context of COVID and nonviolent offenders and, and the risks and so on. Um, which is, it's a pretty good case. Um, but, yeah, there, there are a few other cases that have come down since Justice Lazarus's case, and I just think the courts are going to treat it sensibly. In terms of the prisoners being locked down, if it does turn out to be an ongoing lockdown, then that's frightening. I mean, it's effectively... Um, yeah I mean, who knows what to say about yeah. that? it's It's a horrible thing to imagine.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a bit of discussion um, in the community since the passage um, of that parole legislation, a bit of um, I suppose, concern about the prospect of mass release of prisoners, and people you know saying things like, Oh God, you know we're going to have a jump in crime rates and you know this is crazy' Um, I suppose it'll be like a lot of things in the context of this pandemic, we'll we'll see the impact of these measures if they're taken and it might well provide interesting guidance going forward on a whole lot of different questions of policy because frankly, when you consider the arbitrariness which governs whether any particular offender ends up in jail for any particular offence, I won't be surprised if we don't see any jump in crime, even if we see the release of thousands of people from our jails because there's simply so many people in jail for so many things that occur all the time in our community, Uh, but most people don't go to jail for them.
2: So our prison population across the country is about 43,000 somewhere in that kind of vicinity. So, yeah, but I, I think you're right. Steve, there's a huge proportion of people in custody Mm -hmm. either on remand or serving a sentence for extremely minor offences that don't really go to the heart of public safety Mm -hmm. um, or... um, Really materially affect people's lives in terms of the way that they experience the world and whether they feel safe in it and so on.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, that 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 in New South Wales, of course, until the truth in sentencing legislation in the nineteen eighties, I think, or was it nineties, when Nick Greiner was premier. Um, you could get remissions. You could reduce your non-parole period, and people often did. And unfortunately, there was a there was a minister called Rex Buckets Jackson who used to corrupt that process. Um, and then there was a push against people who were given life sentences and then found themselves out in ten years, eight years, whatever. That led to the quote unquote truth in sentencing reforms, but. It's always, to my mind, been sensible to let people out early if they're doing well and if they're not a risk. Um, and I hope that this will see some return to that. Although, given the way that the coronavirus is spreading at the moment and the health impacts in Australia, it seems to me unlikely that this power will be used at all because it looks like we've got it under control. So here's hoping. Yeah, so
3: the argument that I've been putting to people um, in the Dubbo region who I've spoken to um, or communicated with on Facebook, particularly about the new parole law, is, um, you know, we've got two big jails in the region and my message to people has been, if this thing gets really bad, we've got six ventilators um, at Dubbo Base Hospital. Do you want your elderly relative to have access to one or do you want every ventilator to be being used um, for the treatment of younger inmates from Wellington Jail, many of whom have underlying complications and diseases that make them more vulnerable, and then there'll be no ventilator for your elderly relative? And I think it is one of those kind of points or one of the, those kind of issues that make people reframe what's actually important and what actually matters. Um but yeah, it's been a bit controversial, that law.
2: And it almost was it almost risked in the, the speed with which the emergency legislation was being passed through, risked having no ability to operate. Hey, Manny. Until one of the members of Defence Lawyers New South Wales raised it in a discussion on the group and then we drew it to Rose's attention and then it got passed on through the through the communication within opposition and then to government that there needed to be an amendment to section 276.
0: Yeah, I mean, we fortunately we speak to Rose about that a little bit later, but that's right. We They had initially described the... They had failed to take into account, and one suspects this is because they've abolished the Criminal Law Review Division, which used to provide advice to the Attorney-General about criminal law matters from the practitioner's perspective. That's gone now. And so whoever thought about implementing this um, idea of letting the Commissioner let people out forgot that there's something called the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act and only dealt with the legislation that, that dealt with how to administer sentences, not how to impose them. And the legislation that was first introduced to Parliament did not provide for the provisions of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act to be set aside. And one of those provisions would have prevented the commissioner from corrective services even permit, exercising any power at all. Um, and so fortunately, we we one of the members of Defence Lawyers in New South Wales, who I won't name, but I will highlight if, if he wants me to. I'll ask him later. Um, he came up, he, he found the error, brought it to the group's attention, my attention, and I passed it on to Flick and. You know the change was made at the last minute and i sort of contacted everyone to try and everyone i knew who might know someone unfortunately um as you'll hear a little later we got through and, and that happened um so thank god for that maybe if, if those powers are needed
1: We are now joined by special guest, MLC, member of the Legislative Council, Rose Jackson. Uh, thank you for joining us, Rose. Great to be here. Huge fan of the show. Great. Long time, long time listener. First time caller. Yep. And yep. look, we've got uh, the fantastic Emmanuel and who's going to take the lead on this topic, ask you a few questions. Manny, take it away.
0: Thanks, Jim. Um, Rose, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Um, the first question I ask everybody in the age of COVID-19 is, how are you?
4: Yes, I am well. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm very well, actually. I'm very privileged. You know, I, do, I have a fixed income job. I'm not going to lose my job. My husband's not going to lose his job. And having a two-year-old at home a lot is annoying and I will whinge low level about that. Um, but really, uh, I just feel actually very privileged and lucky and I think it's outrageous if people like me complain. So I'm going great and just really feeling for people whose lives have genuinely been turned upside down and think what's, that they should be front and centre and not people like me.
0: What's a, what's a workday for an MLC who's not sitting during COVID-19 times look like?
4: yeah i mean it's pretty easy for me to work from home um you know i spend a lot of time just checking in with my colleagues uh checking in with the kind of organizations and issues that i care about but you know to be honest no one gives a shit about my drug law reform agenda right now like no one cares about how i think the state should be doing more on climate change right now i mean i'm still working on those things i'm still reading and researching and talking on the things that i care about but you know, that's for, that's for the end half of this year. That's for later this year. We're just doing a lot of research and a lot of planning. And, um, you know, I'm trying to do as much as I can, just share information with people um, about what's happening at a political level. But other than that, you know, there's not a lot going on.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually read your maiden speech to Parliament in preparation for <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like doing that whenever I talk to MPs. So, uh, but I commend it to people. It's one of the rare ones that's actually worth reading. So, I Aww, thank you. I'll have a look. But um, look, one of the things that's concerning me and concerning a lot of people I know is when's Parliament going to sit again?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the we've adjourned until September and. The, it is important to note that that is a, an adjournment, not a proroguing of the Parliament. So the parliamentary processes and the committee processes are still ongoing, um, but we are not scheduled to sit again until September in New South Wales. Um, it's also September in Queensland. It's August federally um, some of the other states have not even committed to a return date, Victoria, WA, are some of those. Um, certainly in New South Wales, and now I see federally today, there is some talk about bringing Parliament back earlier, um, either, either if the situation improves or if there's some kind of emergency legislation that needs to be passed, but all of that is up in the air. None of that is confirmed at this point.
0: I know that federally, the the opposition was opposed to the closure mm-hmm. of the long adjournment of Parliament. What was the state? What was it like in the state? Did you guys know it was coming, or was it kind of thrown down? Was there? Did, did the opposition oppose it here, or was it consensual? Or what? What happened?
4: It was done by agreement in New South Wales. The opposition did not oppose that proposition, but. My understanding is that there were undertakings given by the government that if the situation did improve, that the parliament could and and would come back earlier than that, perhaps in June or July. Those were, you know, an understanding um, between the government and the opposition. But I I have to be honest here, and maybe this doesn't make me the best guest for this show, um, I wasn't there. In the sitting that we had recently, um, that wasn't voluntary. I was fine. I was happy to go, but we were paired out. Um, yeah. We were asked not to attend if we were backbenchers, which I am. And so I agreed with that request. Uh, you know, I, I didn't need to be there and was asked not to be there, so wasn't there. So I'm not. So, sure. what does paired
3: out mean, Rose? Do you want to just explain that for listeners?
4: Yeah. I, I mean, Pairing is a convention that's used um, in Westminster Parliaments to allow members to not be at parliamentary sittings for, you know, a range of reasons. Perhaps there's functions that they really have to attend when Parliament's on. You know, perhaps they're sick or they have caring responsibilities. Those are the normal reasons why pairs are used. And it's the government and the opposition acknowledging that someone may not be in attendance and subbing out a member of the opposing party, you know, to, to, to keep the numbers essentially the same, an um, acknowledgement that not everyone can be there all the time. So we, a number of us, were paired out um, in the recent sitting, so subbed out, not not for, not for to be attending, um, which, you know, was done because they wanted to limit the people gathering in Parliament, you know, that they wanted to have social distancing in the Chamber, so we all, you know weren't sitting squished up like we normally are. Um, but that does mean that, you know, I wasn't there for all of the kind of detailed granular conversations about exactly the options to recall the parliament prior to the September adjournment. But supposedly those options do exist. And I'm very hopeful um, that they will be utilized because I would be extremely disappointed as a member of parliament. If we didn't sit again until September, I would be very Distressed with that, I don't think that's acceptable.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that you were a party to, Rose, was one of I, I'm a, the president of Defence Lawyers New South Wales as an aside, and one of the members on our Facebook group identified a problem with the COVID nineteen legislation that we were able to get through to you and some other people, and, and that was mm. big. Um, and I, one of the things that's been frightening me is that in the absence of Parliament sitting, it's just the little things like that the little corrections to our course that can be made, the discussions that can happen, even behind closed doors. I mean, I mm-hmm. worked a little bit in Parliament when I worked for the Attorney-General. Um, and you get, you know, the, the closed-door discussions make things happen and not people not being there has a real effect. Um, and yeah,
4: absolutely. I, and in, in that instance, yeah. um, I, we were able to get that through to the relevant people via the Shadow Corrections uh, spokesperson who I don't know for full disclosure is Chris Min's, Jim's brother. I don't know if this, I have, but anyway, Chris was able to <laughs> Chris <laughs> was able to get that through to Adam, but he made the point to me, which I thought was quite uh, you know, sort of relevant. He said, this is why legislation normally sits on the table for five days. Like mm. this, This is why that happens so that you don't have, Chris was also at home he was also paired out, two people at home, sort of trying to get messages through. And it, this is not good lawmaking. This is clearly not good lawmaking. And yes, it's extraordinary circumstances and it's emergency legislation. And sure, you know, we got it done. But really, you know, this is the biggest peacetime limitations mm-hmm. on civil liberties that we have seen. Um, and in those circumstances, uh, you know, I just think parliamentary oversight is really important. Um, so that's why I would be very hopeful that some of our parliaments would start reconvening prior to the adjournment, uh, the adjournments that they have passed.
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. The I heard yesterday or the day before that there's the upper, uh, there's an upper house committee forming. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What can you so, us about that?
4: Yeah, so this is why the adjournment be proroguement is relevant. So proroguing the parliament is sort of literally dissolving the parliament, cancelling the parliament, um, which I understand was flagged or floated, um, but reasonably quickly dispensed with. They have adjourned the parliament, so the committees still exist, and the Public Accountability Committee of the New South Wales Legislative Council has commenced. Um, an inquiry into the government's management of COVID, um, the health and economic consequences, which is good. That is some level of parliamentary oversight into what is happening in New South Wales. Um, and, you know, those inquiries are open, they are publicly broadcast, people can contribute to them. So that is some level um, but, you know, I just, it's little things. Like I note in that inquiry, I think there are something like nine or ten members. There's one woman. Um, and we already know that the, you know, the COVID crisis and pandemics uh, do have quite a gender element, both in terms of their workforce impact and their economic impact. So it's little things like that that just mean that committees are not an adequate replacement for parliament. Um, the other thing I would note is that there's no federal government committee and there's i've checked with a number of federal government co- contacts there's not even one in the works there is no plans for a similar committee oversight at the federal level which i think is very disappointing um, and it's quite similar it's quite dissimilar to what they're doing in new zealand in new zealand they have a cross-party parliamentary sort of committee um, it meets very regularly it, it really is intended As a kind of quasi parliament Um, and in fact that's language that the New Zealand Parliament has used to describe their committee process that's not the case in New South Wales this is really you know quite distinct from parliamentary oversight it's better than nothing um, but not that much better it won't make recommendations uh, for some time um, I've sat on parliamentary committees before. I know how seriously the government takes its rec- their recommendations and it's not that seriously. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I'm pleased that the Public Accountability Committee has done that, but I think it is not a real replacement oh. for proper parliamentary oversight.
0: And it sounds like what you're saying is the reason this was done is because they didn't want to get sick. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I at think... At some point, I know that that's a bit callous, but, I mean you you, and i can tell your attitude to this but the members of parliament are, are our elected representatives and i for one expect them to take some sort of risks to ensure our democracy acts as it has
4: yeah i mean i think look to be fair that was probably part of it i mean i think there was also a sense of you know wanting to show leadership and show how serious this situation was i mean I think that they felt as though if they had Parliament sitting and everyone squished in there in the chambers and in there together, the, the public might look at that and say, you're telling us we need to do social distancing, We're telling you're telling us we need to work from home, but you're not doing that. And so there was certainly, I think, a big element of wanting to demonstrate how seriously the political leadership takes it by acting upon that in the operation of their own parliament but certainly yes um you know to the extent that people are motivated by their own you know exposure um i i really do think that that's less relevant i mean certainly older parliamentarians or ones with underlying health conditions you know of course they they can and should be paired out but you know like the british parliament it sat during the blitz like it didn't sit in westminster it sat in church house but it, it's it, Parliament. I agree with you. Like parliamentarians should step up in a time of crisis, um, mm. and we have to show leadership. For you know, people do need to work from home. They do need to socially distance. That is actually very important. But if it's our own personal safety that's the motivating factor, uh, yeah, I like you. I'm, I'm less interested in that, and I think that um, that should not be a determining mm-hmm. factor in whether our parliamentary democracy continues to operate.
0: Yeah, I, I'm so bored. The
2: Yeah. Rose, are there rules that would prohibit Parliament sitting, using technology, and people dialing in remotely like we are now? We you might have seen some of the videos go around this week. There were symphony orchestras that were getting together via Zoom and and playing, you know, with multiple people on the screen or coordinating their amazing music. It just seems that in these times, maybe there are some workarounds that in a whole range of different ways in society we're having to do using technology. Are there some specific rules of parliament that would prohibit that? Do you have to be in the building? That is um,
4: such a great question and a really interesting um, uh, outcome of this whole process may be really reconsidering the way that attendance um and participation in in the parliament is considered i mean no is the short answer there's not really any kind of constitutional or legal barrier to that um the european union parliament for example has already instituted electronic or email voting that is already happening in the eu parliament um you know, in some of, uh, you know, in some of the Australian parliaments, the idea is being tossed around, um, you know, terms like attendance, for example. I mean, they're not defined as requiring physical attendance. It's really just governed by the standing orders and the sessional orders of the parliament, which uh, the standing orders and the sessional orders are the rules that the parliament makes for itself to govern its own Mm. operations. And, Those things do not prohibit, you know, some kind of electronic or e-parliament. I mean, they certainly don't consider it. Like, they certainly don't spell out how that should happen. And probably when it comes to our parliament sitting and our parliament's making laws, maybe you might want to not rely on, you know, implicit suggestions or things that aren't written down. It probably would be better for it to be explicit that the parliament could sit electronically, which it isn't. Um, It is explicit that the committees can meet electronically and telephonically. So that's already possible for committees. And the federal parliament um, did pass some, right at the end of their recent sitting, when they adjourned till August, some changes to their standing orders and sessional orders that more explicitly did contemplate the Parliament sitting or making laws or making decisions electronically. Um, they were, I think, a bit more thoughtful about that, the federal parliament, right at the end, and Labour was supportive of that. Um, we didn't do that in New South Wales, but the door is not closed to that. And I think it's a really interesting question that, you know, lawyers like you guys um, and your you know constitutional counterparts will, you know, would and should look into. Um, what would be um, the, situ- the circumstances in which um, that would be possible? The- the- these laws that have been passed at the state level and federally, these are serious bits of legislation. Like this is a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars, and there's serious restrictions on civil liberties and human rights. And I get all of that, but you have to have parliamentary oversight if, you know, mm-hmm. in those circumstances. You just have to. And... I think that we have to find ways to achieve that, so you know, I, I hope that that can happen.
1: Great. Thanks Rose, that. Thank Rose, cool. thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic.:
4: Okay, yes, see no, you guys.
1: You. Bye),
3: Bye.
1: Welcome back to The Wigs, following on from our conversation with Rose Jackson, MLC. Some interesting insight into how Parliament uh, is not prorogued, but on a, you know, quote-unquote break at the moment during the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to discuss that and more. First up, we're going to go to Felicity Graham. What did you take from that conversation with Rose?
2: A number of things, but one that really dominated in my thinking was... In circumstances where around our federal system we have a federal parliament that has adjourned for a considerable period of time and state parliaments that have followed suit this national cabinet not having opposition representatives on it is to me a real failing in terms of making sure that that body Operates in a really effective way and in a way that has greater legitimacy for the purpose of then having um, a scenario where people have more trust in the messages that they're getting from the government about this public health crisis and are more prepared to follow the rules that are necessary to protect all of us and, and our health. So it seems in situations where... Across the board, we have a pairing back of the different ordinary institutions that bring accountability in our system the parliament, the courts. When we have that pairing back, all the more necessary are certain mechanisms to make sure that there's a, as much accountability within the the framework that we do have as possible and it, not having opposition representatives on that national cabinet to me seems like a, a key um, area where the, there's a, a lacking, lacking um, accountability measure.
3: Stephen? Yeah, look, I thought it was interesting. Um, I too heard these suggestions that parliament should not sit or would not sit uh, because parliament should show some sort of example to the community um i don't accept that as uh being any reason to effectively suspend the sitting of parliament um i think the community informed people in the community at least would well understand that our parliament is an essential service if you want to put it that way um and if our parliamentarians think that there's not sufficient understanding of that in the community, then maybe they should act in a way through parliament, through this crisis, um, in a way that, you know, addresses that lack of understanding of the importance um, of parliament. And one way to do that, or well, there's probably a number of ways to do that, but one way to do that is is proper and effective scrutiny of what's occurring. Um, another way, though, is for uh, for bipartisan approaches to be taken where appropriate and for Labor, Liberal, National, whatever, uh, to set aside political differences and to unite uh, behind public health messaging. And, you know, maybe the sort of tensions that we've seen are attributable Um, as Felicity said, to not having the opposition um, in the National Health Cabinet. Uh, That's probably a legitimate point. But it's important to remember there are Labor leaders in that National Health Cabinet. So it is a bipartisan health cabinet to a very significant extent, yet we're already seeing a splintering around support for the decisions of that cabinet. And I have no problem with dissension and criticism um, and critique, it's its really important. Uh, but when you see uh, criticism for the sake of criticism, when you see, you know, quite cynical calls from certain political leaders that certain things should happen yesterday or certain measures should be implemented as soon as possible, when it's difficult to see those things as anything other than trying to get ahead of the decision-making curve so that you can then claim credit for th- for things that you think are coming anyway, then frankly, it's hard not to be disgusted with members of the political class um, in that situation. So it's a shame that Parliament is suspended. Um, it's a shame that some politicians aren't acting better. And maybe if Parliament wasn't suspended, then you'd have all those people there in that building and they might work a way forward that uh, that hasn't got the flaws uh, that we see at the moment.
1: Manuel Kukasharian.
3: Look, I think
0: the National Cabinet, extra constitutional though it may be, is probably the best response to this unideal situation. Um, I like that it's got the different premiers. I think it's the strength of federalism bearing through because you have points of contention, you've got argy-bargy between the states individually and between the states and the Commonwealth, and that's excellent. I think that that has already led to better and more considered results than we would have got if we didn't have that political process between them. I wholeheartedly agree with what Stephen is saying. It's fucking appalling that politicians are scoring political points. And what I hope that this crisis brings home, and I... Sure it won't, is some sort of pull back from the real extreme where we operate, where all we have is people thinking about fucking narratives and not thinking about the underlying reality. We're kind of forced now down to think about the underlying reality a little bit and be more honest about it. And I hope to God the politicians who are doing that are the ones who emerge out of this as the successful ones in terms of the adjournments of the various parliaments i think it's just abject acts of cowardice i wholeheartedly reject the idea that people needed to to you know be shown leadership because parliament parliamentarians aren't being seen in the same room set up a bloody video link if you can actually just turn up turn up and put yourselves in the shittiest hotel rooms that you're putting the people who are flying in, like the worst of them, take those for the parliamentarians and put them on a bus and then go to parliament and they can go to their hotel rooms and they can be isolated altogether for all I care. That's what you do if you're showing real leadership.
2: They can be like a sequestered jury for the period of the pandemic.
0: They could and should have done it. If If they wanted to show people they were serious, that's how you do it and in the meantime you allow the communication you allow the you, you ensure the checks on executive power and I think if you look at this clearly, the backbenchers are pretty happy to have done that, I suspect. I suspect it's the front bench who's all concerned about narrative control and all concerned about looking the right way on both sides, on every side, or on both sides at least, they're the ones who are opposed to that kind of thing. And that thing that we were talking about, they actually stuffed up the legislation in the first draft so that no, they, they wanted to give the commissioner of corrective services the power to release people onto parole and they stuffed it up and if some if one of the people one of the barristers on defence lawyers new south Wales hadn't caught it and if we hadn't got through to rose that would not have been fixed and it's just emblematic of the danger emblematic of the dangers that can occur if you don't have parliament sitting and you don't have community input into the decision making of government so that's my rant but i think it's fucking appalling
2: Manny, are there any other historical examples of parliament closing in the face of some kind of pandemic or global event like this?
0: In, during the Black Plague, the UK parliament was postponed in 1665-66. In and we're talking about 1665, so that they didn't have the same sort of masks, et cetera, that we have these days. But it actually left London and sat in Oxford, in October 1965. So it wasn't gone the whole time. And this is during the Black Plague, which COVID, SARS-CoV-2 being what it is, is not what the Black Plague was. Um, and during the Spanish flu, part of the, this is the Westminster Parliament, wasn't suspended. Um, the backdrop, of course, to that was World War One, so it had to keep going, but it, it certainly stayed on during the Spanish flu. And on all accounts... SARS COVID-2 or whatever it is is effectively the same or like Spanish flu from what I can understand um in terms of its risks and impacts so I just don't see why it was necessary we've got measures in place that weren't available to these individuals our representatives and what we're seeing I think ultimately um is just frightening like I I I I don't know, I'm just I'm struck at the cowardice of it and I'm struck of the, the ease with which our democracy and laws have really been put aside on the advice of a few doctors. That is a literal definition of what technocracy is, specialists deciding how you will live your life based on their specialised information. Now, it may be right and it may be safe, but that's at the moment, if it's right... And we don't know where that goes, and we as a principle should reject it, even at the cost of life. People died to give us these rights, and we're not willing to risk getting sick in order to maintain them, and that frightens me.
1: Thanks a lot, Wiggs, on short notice, uh, coming together and giving us all that you've got. We're going to get back together in a couple of days and give you all... A new one. So Felicity, Emmanuel, Stephen, thank you for your time.
3: Thanks, guys. Thanks,
1: Jim. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, thank you for joining us for this very special coronavirus episode. More to come in the coming days. Don't forget to head over and like The Wigs on Facebook. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash The Wigs Podcast to see a range of resources we will be posting. Please feel free to also send through questions, tips and comments and The Wigs will try and address them in coming episodes. Thanks
4: for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes.